Amen. You open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. So we continue and come down the home stretch on our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're going to continue. This is part two of what I had started a couple of weeks ago on looking at what our Lord has to say on false prophets. So Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to start at verse 15. Hear the words of God. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we look to your word, Lord, we pray that you would be with us, lead us, and guide us. Uh, Lord, may your words change us today, and may we not just go through the motions. Lord, but may your word do its work. Equip us, Lord. Convict us. Comfort us. That your word would not return void today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, we started this last time, and we looked at the Lord's warning on false prophets And we're at the end, the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, which has the overall theme of of judgment. And last time we looked at the first two headers of what we saw in the text when it comes to false prophets. And we looked at God's warning of false prophets or warning us of false teachers. And this is a theme throughout the whole New Testament. Warnings in almost every uh, New Testament book. Uh, warnings not only of false teachers, uh, which is addressed today, but also were warned of false teaching. Paul warned the Romans in chapter 16, verse 17. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. The writer of Hebrews warns us not to be led away by diverse and strange teachings, Hebrews 13 and verse 9. So Jesus gives us this warning here. He says, beware, which is a very strong word. It means wake up, be discerned, pay attention. This is in the the imperative tense, and it's it's a command uh, that we are to be aware and to be on the lookout for false teachers and false prophets. Now, I want to take just a moment uh, to differentiate false teachers from false teaching. Uh, We are to be aware of false teachers, but we're also to be on guard for false teaching, okay? And there can be a difference. Just because somebody is teaching falsely, it doesn't make them a false prophet, doesn't make them a false teacher, okay? But nonetheless, we need to be renewed by the Word of God so that we can discern from false teaching. Uh, That's why I tell people all the time, don't just take what I say for granted. Be as the noble Bereans were in Acts chapter 17 to go study the Scriptures to see if what I'm telling you to be true. And if it's not, I am not infallible, okay? So I could give false teaching from the pulpit. It's incumbent upon you to be a noble Berean 
uh, to see if these things are true. But to give you an example, um, Alistair Begg is a pastor that um, just a few weeks ago, I think probably most of you know this, uh, Alistair Begg is not a false teacher by any stretch of the imagination. He preaches the gospel of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. Uh, He has had a great ministry throughout the ages. He is not a false prophet as described here in the New Testament by Jesus. He's not leading people to hell. The context of our passage is these false prophets are leading people away from the narrow way, away from the narrow gate, and leading them to the broad gate down the broad way, which leads to destruction. But recently... And this is why we need to be aware of not only false teachers, but false teaching even coming from who we would think are solid in their theology. But recently, Alistair Begg advised a lady to attend a granddaughter's transsexual wedding, uh, even to bring a gift out of love for that person. So after everything blew up and people were calling for him to recant that, he preached a sermon to double down on the advice Uh, a couple Sundays ago, and named it uh, Compassion versus Condemnation. He opened his sermon by saying that he's not accustomed to the American fundamentalist, quote-unquote, version of Christianity. And so he goes on by using Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, and how the father reacted to the son's repentance versus the older brother, who was like the Pharisee, in the story and he likened it to people who were dogmatic about people not attending gay homosexual or transgender weddings the very title was unfortunate of his sermon because the very title was compassion versus condemnation and so what he sought to teach was that instead of condemning instead of his grandmother condemning the granddaughter who was trans getting married by not going to the wedding, that she should have compassion and be up front with her by saying, this is a wrong lifestyle, right? But going to the wedding and even giving her a gift, maybe even a Bible, okay? But the, what he did is called, and he, didn't do, he, he, didn't, he did this out of ignorance, I truly believe, is he built what's called a straw man, okay? The very title of the message, Compassion versus Condemnation. And the way that he used Luke 15, totally out of context, to then point to people, I would say like myself, and and probably most all of you, who are dogmatic about that, that we don't attend a trans or a gay wedding because it is an abomination to God, and celebrating what God calls as abomination uh, is not reserved for a Christian. Uh, But even in the title, uh, Condemnation versus Compassion, he's building a straw man by saying, by not attending and being dogmatic about every situation, that you're not being compassionate, that you're actually condemning. And by not attending, you're not being the loving father, right, who ran after his son when he saw his son repenting and coming home. But you're being like the older brother, like the Pharisee, right? So he's built the straw, straw man to just tear it down. The problem, though, with that is that in the parable in Luke 15 the son comes running home in repentance that granddaughter trans wedding there was no repentance there was no seeking for God she was in rebellion towards God and he says in his in his sermon he says quote 
in that conversation with the grandmother, he says, I was more concerned about the well-being of their relationship more than anything else, end quote. This is exactly the problem, because in Begg's desire to show love, compassion, and empathy without realizing it, he succumbs to the world's view of love, compassion, and empathy, which conflicts with the biblical view of what love and compassion is. His attempt to love this grandmother and the attempt that he had to help this grandmother, quote, love her trans granddaughter, place the glory of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of marriage, and its picture of the very gospel that he preaches subservient to the relationship. Now use that example on any other category of sin, and you'll see it just to unravel. Take abortion, which is just a fancy word for baby murder. So let's say that that granddaughter, that granddaughter said, hey, grandma, I'm having an abortion. And I know you don't agree with that type of lifestyle, but it would really mean a lot to me if you would just be there to support me. If you would just be there in the parking lot to support me. I know you don't agree with it. And then, you know, I really want to live my life. And even though you may not agree with that, you know, I'm going to be able to graduate, um, you know, my master's by not having this baby. And so we're going to have a big celebration afterwards celebrating the abortion. Will you please come to that and just be there? Now, do you think for a minute that Alistair Begg would advise that grandmother to go in that category, in that situation? No, absolutely not. And you, and you may say, well, that's a different category. Well, let's think about this. See, this is the problem that our culture has and that Christianity has because it's adopted, uh, it's adopted the world's definition of love and compassion. This is the problem. Many don't truly understand just how much an abomination is to God the sin of homosexuality, homosexuality the, the sin of transgender. It is an abomination to God. It twists the very creation ordinance that God made at the very beginning, the marriage ordinance. And it's the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when there's a wedding, quote-unquote wedding, that's celebrating same-sex, trans, marriage. It is a frontal attack, and it literally is a mocking of God and his creation ordinance. And no Christian can participate in that. Because let me tell you what, by going to that wedding, even if the grandmother says, I don't agree with your lifestyle, but I'm going to go to the wedding to support and to show you that I love you. To participate is to affirm no matter what you say with your words. So that grandmother can say all she wants, that I don't agree with this, but I'm going to be there. What she's telling her granddaughter is that, you know what, grandma, she really doesn't agree with my lifestyle, but she came. She must not really truly believe what she says. Or, you know, deep down, she knows that what she believes is wrong. And maybe grandma's starting to progress a little bit. That's the message. Because when you're there, you're celebrating. And most weddings now, isn't there a part where it says, if anybody objects, please say now? I don't think they're doing that a lot in weddings. But how, as, you, as a Christian, 
When you don't say anything to object, you just affirmed what God calls an abomination. So instead, instead of affirming their rebellion to God, because that's what it is, by celebrating their mockery of what he ordained from the beginning, the loving thing to do according to God's word and the compassionate thing to do is to be courageous and with all meekness meet with them privately and in tears with fear and trembling for their soul. Explain to them why you cannot attend their, quote, wedding and plead with them to turn from that lifestyle which leads them to hell and turn to Christ. See, it's not a conversation. The grandmother doesn't, it's not, hey, I don't agree with your lifestyle. Like, that sounds like it's an option, right? Okay, that, that's great. We don't say, I don't agree with your lifestyle. It's please don't do what God calls an abomination and an egregious sin in the eyes of God. That's the kind of seriousness that the conversation should have had. And that, my friends, that is true love according to God's word. So this is an example of false teaching that we need to be aware. Not a false teacher, but left unchecked, this false teaching over years and maybe generations in a ministry can lead to false teachers that lead people to hell. So we can't compromise this issue. So we looked at, back to the text, we looked at God's instruction, how to identify the false teachers. First, they come in disguise. It says they come in sheep's clothing, verse 15. They come in disguise. They creep in, Jude says in his epistle. So we are to be on the lookout and, and recognize just because somebody says the right words, the Christianese, uh, we need to then examine the fruit. And that's in the next instruction uh, is to examine the fruit, and we went through that last time. So we went through God's warning of false teachers and God's instruction. Today we're going to look at the last two headers, which is what our response must be, what man's response, and then we're going to look at God's response. Man's response to false teachers and God's response. So how are we to respond to false teachers, those who lead people astray down the broad way to destruction? Jesus, here in our text, he only gives a warning and how to identify them. But if you would allow me some leeway to examine the whole counsel of God, we can see how we are to respond to false teachers. See, much of the world and our cultural Christianity would say, you know what, just love them. You know, they're, they're, they may not be all right in their doctrine, but they're, they're talking about Jesus right? Uh, they're, they're saving people, they may even say. So you know what? Just, just ignore them, pray for them, uh, don't judge them, and don't cause division, right? You hear that a lot uh, with false teachers. Be united, and who are you to judge? You think you have all your theology right? Uh, no, but that's not what the Bible says on how man is to respond to false teachers. I absolutely reject that line of thinking. We must, our response, we must both expose and sternly rebuke false teachers. I have this uh, framed meme in my office that my wife got me, and it's from Reftoons, if you know that. 
and it's a picture of John Calvin, and he's quoted by saying, every pastor has two voices, one to herd the sheep and another to beat away the wolves, okay? So it's incumbent first and foremost upon the elders of the church to beware and to watch out for wolves that are disguised as sheep and to ward them off, to expose them and sternly rebuke them. But it's also incumbent upon each Christian, upon each of you to do the same. And why? Why must we expose and sternly rebuke false teachers? Because, friends, they lead people down the broad way. They lead people to hell, to destruction, to eternal judgment. This is why in false teachers in the Old and New Testament, this is why you don't see God putting up with them. You don't see godly leaders putting up with false teachers. You see harshness. You see even some bad words in their day. That's how important it is. So let's look at some of these examples. First, Jesus himself. He was no jellyfish, friends. He was not the little limp-wristed Jesus that much of our culture preaches about today. A whole chapter in Matthew chapter 23 is devoted to Jesus condemning the false teachers of his day, the Pharisees. He says, woe to you scribes. He calls them hypocrites, blind guides. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He says inside they're full of dead man's bones, full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He calls them serpents. He calls them a brood of vipers. Not very tolerant, Jesus. But he has reserved a hotter place in hell, friends, for those who would claim to speak for him that lead people there. And what about Paul, the apostle? In Galatians 1, what did he say to the churches in Galatia that if somebody came and preached a different gospel than they received, pray for them. Don't judge them. No, that's not what he said. He said, let them be damned. That's the word in the Greek. Let them be cursed to hell. That is how serious we need to take those who would claim to speak for God but lead people to hell. Early in Paul's ministry, there was a false Jewish prophet in Acts 13. Listen to what he says, verse 10. He says, you are full of all deceit and fraud. You son of the devil. Not very nice, Paul. Paul would not last very long in the American cultural Christianity. He says, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Then, in Titus, the Apostle Paul, after giving the qualifications of the elders, which I read earlier, or bits of it, he says in chapter 1, this is the reason why the elders of the church are able to uh, refute those who contradict. He names those who are refuting or who are distorting the teaching. Uh, He says that, They are to hold fast the faithful word so that they will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Verse 11, of those who are teaching falsely, he says, they must be silenced because they are upsetting the whole families, teaching things they should not teach. 
for the sake of sordid gain. And then in verse 13, he says, for this reason, to Titus, he says, reprove them severely. Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. In another epistle, Paul even calls them out by name in 2 Timothy verses 2. Beginning at verse 15, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further godliness. And their talk, speaking of those who would infiltrate the church and disseminate false teaching, he says their talk will spread like gangrene. Think about cancer and how cancer spreads like gangrene. Their talk will spread like gangrene, he says, among them and then names them for all eternity to be written in the word of God, these false teachers. Hymenius and Philetus, he says, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. Our response, friends, to false teachers, we are to not only be aware of them, to identify them, uh, to mark them, but we are to expose them and refute them and rebuke them sternly. This is the biblical model. Our response must be swift, direct, and harsh because, friends, false teachers lead people to hell. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that these false teachers lead people to hell? Because if you do, then we really need to act like it more. And I'm guilty of this. We laugh about it. We laugh about these false teachers. We post funny memes about these false teachers. And I'm guilty as the, as the rest. But we ought to be deeply grieved that they are leading people on the broad way. One false teacher right here in our community is leading people to hell. And his teaching has spread like gangrene all over the Charlotte area and now even all other parts of the country. You know his name is Stephen Furtick, so-called pastor of Elevation, quote, church. And friends, let me, let me just tell you, it's not a church. They don't even call themselves a church or church service. It's the Elevation experience is what they call themselves. Now, we are to be fruit inspectors, right? We are to inspect the fruit. You will know them by their fruit. I don't know Mr. Furtick personally, but I can only base off what I see in his motivational speeches. Now, at first glance, elevation seems solid. They were part of the Southern Baptist Convention until recently, which doesn't mean a whole lot, other than they affirmed uh, Southern Baptist doctrine, which has the right gospel. If you visit their church website, their church doctrine, we would all agree with their church doctrine, although it's pretty shallow, there's not a whole lot. Uh, but in their church doctrine on their website, they affirm the things like, uh, like the Trinity and salvation by faith alone. They even give millions of dollars to the community, and they're very revered in the community. So what's, what's the problem? You know, many even say that he's a loving father and husband. So, I mean, so what's the problem with Elevation Church and Steve Furtick? Well, there are a lot of problems, 
It goes beyond what they claim to know, and it goes on to his false teaching, which lead people astray. So there's a lot of issues. The first thing is that he does what's called eisegesis. Instead of explaining what the text means, exegesis, he puts in what he wants to into the text, namely himself. Uh, He puts himself into the text as the hero, as the one who's always getting blessed. He puts man into the text, so everything is about you and me. Many people who have left and have seen the truth, uh, they've coined the term uh, narcissus. Okay, for how he preaches, because it's all about Pastor Furtick. Okay, so he does eisegesis and has man-centered theology. Every sermon is centered not around Christ, but centered around man, namely him and the people in his audience. He says things like, quote, following Jesus doesn't change you into something else. It reveals who you've been all along, end quote. If I were to stand up in here and say something like that, I pray that all of you would walk out. How ridiculous. Because it clearly contradicts Scripture, where it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. There's other problems, like the experience they want to keep from distractions. So there's firsthand accounts of staff kicking out nursing moms, staff kicking out parents with kids who are just a little fussy, okay? So that's a problem. Also, a big problem is he teaches a heresy called modalism. Modalism is a heresy that the Trinity is not God in three persons, but God who changes forms in his substance and essence. Now, again, their church website affirms the Trinity, but he clearly teaches in the likes of T.D. Jakes, the heresy called modalism. He says, he said one time, quote, uh, speaking of Jesus, he says, Jesus says, you know, quote, I am not leaving you. I am changing forms. Then later in the same sermon, he says, quote, and now Jesus is taken from their sight and hidden in a cloud, but did not leave. He just changed forms. He did not disappear he just was no longer visible. Instead, he was internal. He said, it's good that I'm ghosting you. It's good that I leave in physical form because then I can give you in spiritual form, then I can direct you from a deeper place. I don't even know what that means. Uh, But he's teaching that God actually changes forms, that he can be the son and then morph into the Holy Spirit and then morph back into the Father. And he, get the, he got this by one of his greatest mentors, which is T.D. Jakes, another false teacher. In another sermon, he said, quote, God is energy. God is not a spirit, he says. God is energy. God is a molecular structure, he says. That fills all in all, and that's what it means to say that Christ was from the beginning. Another problem that Stephen Furtick uh, has is he conducts spiritual manipulation, and he is a master social engineer. That's what they do at Elevation Church. He uses spiritual manipulation to get people to respond to have a salvation experience. They even have or had at one point an amen team that the first two rows were reserved for staff that were dressed like regular people, but they were instructed on how to get the crowd pumped up, 
how to say amen, to get people moving. They also place them there so when he has impromptu altar calls, guess who's the first to come forward? The staff who's been instructed to come forward. There's even a first-hand account of impromptu baptisms where they find out beforehand who wants to be baptized and they strategically place them in the audience and then they tell them when we say who wants to be baptized, they are to stand up and come forward so that other people can come. It's spiritual manipulation. Also, his source of revelation is outside the scriptures. Remember, that's another mark of a false teacher, that the source of revelation is not from the word of God. He says things when he's interpreting the, trying to interpret the scriptures. He says things like, God revealed to me, and I want to share with you. His source of revelation is outside the scriptures. And because he hears directly from God, if you question him, hail thou, Pastor Furtick, if you question him, you're questioning God. And uh, the firsthand accounts of people who were close in the inner circles, in the inner staff, as soon as they started questioning things that he said, immediately in a cultish type of form, they were outcasted and people stopped talking to him and started calling them haters. That was the big thing, that they were haters and they just need to listen to Pastor Furtick because he gets special revelation from God. It's like a little pope who speaks infallibly. Now they won't admit it, but in practice, this is how it is at Elevation Church. Even further concerning is the little, little God's doctrine that he teaches. And this is the heresy that we as humans can become just like God. He says this, quote, When he said, let us make man in our image, he needed someone to show the world what he looked like or else he would have just been a concept. Then later he says in that same sermon, quote, when God said, I am, to Moses, he was trying to get him to see, you are as I am. How, how bad is that? It's awful. So he's not just teaching that you can be, you're an image bearer of God, that you can become like God in, in how you love others. They call the communicable attributes of God. Like, yes, God is love, we can love. God is mercy, we can be merciful. But he teaches that you can be like God in his divinity, in his power. And that is dangerous. It's all the false teachers teach the same thing. And this is the heart of the prosperity gospel, that we can be just like God in his attributes, both communicable and non-communicable. But listen, those are bad things, but that's not the most dangerous thing about this false teacher, Stephen Furtick. The most dangerous thing about Stephen Furtick is he is a very picture of verses 15 through 20, and he stands near the narrow gate where people are to enter through repentance and faith. He stands right by the narrow gate the very place where sinners are to go through to be saved, and he leads them away onto the broad way to destruction. That is the most dangerous thing about his ministry. I'm absolutely convinced that Stephen Furtick is more dangerous than secular humanism and atheism 
who seek to lead people away from religious dogma. He is more dangerous than the deconstruction movement. Why? Well, at least secular humanism, atheism, at least they're honest about what they're trying to pull people away from. But his teaching is so deceptive, yet it's captivating and inspiring people, but leading them to hell. He's convincing people that they are believers when they're not. In their annual report for 2023, they boasted last year that they had 21,429, quote, decisions. That's how decisions for Christ. What a great ministry, Mark. They're leading 20,000 people to make a decision for Christ. They had 4,003 baptisms, 389 uh, e-kids salvations. Some may say, hey, if only just a few of those 21,000 people were actually saved under his ministry, wouldn't that be a good thing? Well, my friend, listen, because of the spiritual manipulation, those decisions for Christ were not true conversions, or they were already saved and they were just coming back in repentance. How can I say that? Because of this spiritual manipulation that he does, there's no true gospel because there's no teaching of sin. There's no teaching of man's depravity leading to hell that you are justly deserving of God's condemnation. There's no teaching of what it means to believe upon Christ. There's only a mental assent at, at best. Hey, believe these things about Jesus and you will be saved. Instead of preaching a gospel that saves sinners from the wrath of God due to their sin, Furtick preaches a false gospel that saves people who weren't that bad in the first place and saves them from their earthly problems, saves them from their hard places, saves them from the pain they're going through in life. After each time he speaks, twisting scripture, eisegeting text, he will sometimes say, after these man-centered sermons, he will sometimes say something like, quote, and I'm, I'm, no quote, I'm paraphrasing because he says stuff like this. He says, and if you don't know this Jesus and want to make a decision to follow him today, repeat this prayer. And then goes through the sinner's prayer, says the words but there's been no teaching about sin, repentance, and what faith is. So the people who make a decision for Christ, they are choosing to follow a Jesus that doesn't exist. They're choosing to follow a Jesus who Stephen Furtick presents to them that's not from the word of God. He uses Christian words like Jesus, like faith, like light, like darkness, like salvation. And this is why he and his so-called church are so dangerous more than atheism more than the deconstruction movement and we must he's right here in our backyard you may ask why do i go so much so, so much trouble to expose stephen furtick and most of you probably already agree with all, all all this well first the bible commands it commands that we are to expose and to rebuke them harshly severely Second, we are responsible in helping people out of this false doctrine, this false teaching leading people to hell. Jude gives us this exhortation in his epistle. Uh, in Jude, the only chapter, uh, starting at verse 
20, after warning of false prophets, the whole epistle, he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. In verse 22, having mercy on some who are doubting. Those who are in these false doctrine, these false teachers, they have doubts, they're struggling, have mercy upon them. Then he says, uh, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. What Jude is saying here is if you know someone who's caught in a ministry that's leading people to hell, such as Stephen Furtick, it's incumbent upon you to pull them out of the fire. Seek them with love. Plant seeds of truth to them. Don't, don't condemn them. Because in your sinfulness, you too would be deceived into the, that false teaching. Give them truth. And here's the confidence that we have in our sovereign God, that if they are God's sheep, God will lead them out of this false teaching. So that's our response. That's what our response needs to be. We need to expose, we need to mark them, avoid them, rebuke them, and warn others about them. But there's one more thing I want to address that Jesus does in the text. The last point for today is we need to look at what God's response is to false teachers. We see the warning. We see how to identify them. We see how we are to respond. How does God respond? Let's look back at our text in verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The one who speaks for God or claims to speak for God, but does not bear the markings of one whom God sent, has been judged by God. And God responds with eternal judgment. This is God's consistent way of dealing with with false teachers. God, in the Old Testament, prescribed the death penalty for false prophets, Deuteronomy 18. And this is a picture of God's eternal judgment that they will face. Now remember, there were two warnings. I read them last week. There were two warnings of false prophets in Deuteronomy 18. One was if somebody would prophesy and it would come true, but they use their prophecy as a way of leading people away. God said, nope, don't do that. That's what we see with, uh, with a lot of these false teachers is they say a lot of good things and then they lead people away. And then the other rebuke is when they prophesy and it doesn't come true, just once, just once, they are to be put to death. That's how serious God considers those who would claim uh, to speak for him. This is how severe of an issue it is to God. You lead people away from the narrow way, from the narrow gate, as we see in verse 13 and 14. You, you speak the words, you speak Christianese, you look like you're there at the narrow gate, but you lead people away. God will deal with you in eternity. He put to death Hananiah. We read last week, Jeremiah, or last time, Jeremiah 28. 
So he puts them to physical death, but also eternal death. And Jesus reiterates this passage in verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. John the Baptist reiterates this actually before in chapter 3, verse 10. So this is why we should pray, friends. We need to pray not only for the people who are under false teachers, but we need to pray for the false teachers. That God, with his mercy, would grant them repentance. That they would turn. And whether or not men like Stephen Furtick are are intentionally doing what they're doing, I don't know. He could be totally ignorant. But what I do know, if you go back, you go back to his roots, okay? He went to North Greenville University, a very Christian, solid university for the most part. Uh, Then he got his uh, MDiv, I believe, uh, at Southwestern or Southeastern Southern Theological Seminary. Some of his early sermons, wow, sounds pretty pretty spot on. But if you you look at his trajectory over the time, how he continues to adapt to culture, adapt to culture, adapt to culture, and all of a sudden now he's gone apostate. He is not preaching the true gospel. We need to pray for men like that, that God would grant him repentance. And at the same time, we need to, to beware. Even in this church right here, that's three years young. You take 10 years of small incremental compromises. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and all of a sudden, this church is an apostate church. We need to hold fast the word of faith. We need to always be looking back to what says the word of God, not adapting the church to the culture, but speaking truth to the culture from God's word. So in conclusion... Friends, understanding these truths here of false prophets should change us. It should grow our love for our great prophet prophesied to Moses, and that's Jesus Christ, who reveals God to us. He is a prophet who reveals God to us, leads us to truth, and keeps us from going astray. Knowing these truths should grow our zeal for God's truth our zeal to not compromise. It should grow our zeal to speak courageously. It should grow our love for those who are deceived by false prophets and not try to win a debate, but try to rescue them and snatch them out of the fire. Because of the grace given to you, God is, by his grace, has not led you to be under the teaching of a false prophet. Because of this grace, this ought to be the fuel. This ought to be what's in your heart and the fuel that drives you to share truth and to share Christ, the great prophet, with others. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the grace you've given us that we do not sit under such horrendous, heretical, man-centered, false teaching. Lord, without your restraint and your grace, your leading, your guiding, we could be right there. Help us, God, have a heart for the lost, have a heart for false teachers, for their repentance, have a heart for them, but also be stern in exposing and rebuking. Lord, we pray that you would help us 
Lord, no doubt all of us here know someone, friends, family, coworker, who goes to a church so-called like Elevation, like others who teach and preach a gospel that you've never shared, which is no gospel at all. Lord, help us to be loving and compassionate and kind by snatching them out of the fire, by giving them seeds of truth, by exposing what they're under, Lord. Help us to do it with all fear and compassion and love for our friends, our coworkers, our family. Lord, I pray that you would shut his ministry down. Lord, that you would lead your sheep out from under him and lead them to biblically sound churches who would teach them and feed them food from the master. We thank you. We honor you and praise you. In Jesus' name.